Welcome to 20 Minute Bible Study, a teaching podcast from Faith on Hill Church in Milwaukee, Oregon. My name's Adam, and while I put 20 minutes on the timer, why don't you turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Well, I hope you had a fantastic Christmas and a happy new year. We finished off in our last episode with the Ten Commandments. And when we talk about God's law, we are speaking about either universal truth, don't murder, don't steal, don't worship things that aren't God, or we are speaking about national law. God was establishing the nation of Israel. I don't live in the nation of Israel. You don't live in the nation of Israel. And even the people that live in modern Israel were not living in the land of ancient Israel. And so uh, God was establishing a law for a nation of people. So we're either dealing with universal law or we're dealing with national law, or we are dealing with cultural application of a universal truth. For example... Um, it is it is universally true, um, you know, uh, don't steal, right? What is theft? What is property ownership? How does that play out from one culture to another? One culture might have a very specific sense of property ownership, whereas another culture has a very different sense of property ownership. So we're trying to figure out how do we take God's universal truth, apply his law, and into a a specific cultural context. For example, we know that in the days of King David in the Old Testament, men had long hair. In the Greco-Roman culture of the first century, men had short hair. And so... The Apostle Paul, in a few places in the scriptures, writes about how men shouldn't have long hair and women should. What he was dealing with was a cultural application of a universal truth that God made people male and female. It's all the way back in the book of Genesis. This universal truth. How does that play out? might look different from one culture to another cultural situation. Now we've gotten past the Ten Commandments, which are universal truths. No idols, no worshiping things that aren't God. No murder. No stealing. No immorality. All of those things are true. Rest. All of these things are universal truth. And now God's going to get into national laws and cultural specifics. For example, chapter 20, verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites this, you have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourself gods of silver or gods of gold. They had come from an idolatrous polytheistic culture, the the land of Egypt. Polytheism, many gods, 
uh, idols and false images everywhere. Even the hieroglyphs could be idolatrous. What do you think the Sphinx is in, in Egypt? It's cool. I mean, as much as, as it's, it's cool to see, um, ancient Egypt is so cool because there was such a developed civilization in a desert area that is able to preserve. Generally speaking, uh, civilizations have not developed to that extent in, in desert regions. But where they do, because of the dryness and the, and the uh, lack of, of humidity, they are able to preserve, whereas the Incans or the Mayans had a very, very developed culture and empire in South America. But because of the humidity and the realities of rainforest and jungle, much of what they created has been lost over the centuries. So as, as cool as it is to see ancient Egyptian architecture and uh, archaeology, we have to recognize that those were idols. Those were false gods for the worship of false gods. So God is saying, you're not only, you have left an idolatrous people, but now you're going into a land that is full of idolatry. And you are not to be idolatrous. Yet, God was prescribing worship for them. Make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and your goats and your cattle. Wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. So what God is saying is, for your worship of the true God, you are not to put idols of gold or silver alongside of the altar on which you worship me. You're not to cover your bases. Well, I believe in Jesus, but you know, I also, um, I also think that maybe if, if, I, if I try to uh, follow the secret or uh, adapt Buddhist practices or um, you know, wh- whatever else somebody might come into, that's, that's sort of that idea. Yes, we believe that Yahweh is the true God, or he is the God of Jacob and uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but, you know, we're also coming into a land, and so maybe there's some gods of this region we need to also appease, and they're not as great as our God, but we don't want them mad at us, so we'll have this little silver idol so that they also get the honor that, that they deserve. God's saying none of that. You're You've left an idolatrous land, you're entering a land full of idolatry, but you are my chosen people set apart from this world. So he says, uh, you build your altars of, of earth. So he's, he's basically saying you can, you can take a bunch of dirt and stones and build up a place for, to put your sacrificial animal. But you will not put false idols alongside there. Verse 25, if you make an altar of stones for me, Do not build it with dressed stones, for you will defile it if you use a tool on it. So he's saying there's going to be this temptation because I'm just making, I'm just telling you to make simple, humble altars. And there's going to be a temptation for you to build an altar. And an altar is just a Altar's this funny word because in churches, you know, we, we, we sing songs, you know, oh, come to the altar, you'll hear about altar calls. But in ancient worship, the altar was just the place in which you would place the sacrifice where worship would happen. 
And you could see where they would be mocked by tribes and nations surrounding them. Those, those Israelites, they can't even build a good altar. Look at the glory and the splendor and the beauty of the altars in our temple. The Philistines worshipped the god Dagon. Many uh, people in that area worshipped gods like Baal and Asherah. And you just pile some dirt together and that's how you worship your god? There is always the temptation for the people of God to try to look acceptable and respectable to the outside world. Now, there is also the temptation to live in such a way as that you're not accessible or understandable by the outside world. And I am 100% opposed to that. I want non-Christians to clearly and simply understand our good news message. I, I don't want church to be so foreign that somebody walks through the doors and they don't understand anything that's happening. But at the same time, we, we worship not in a way to be respectable to non-worshippers or acceptable. Your faith is too simplistic. You need to be more intellectual. Your, your faith is too primitive. You need to adapt. We may adapt a method, but the message never changes. And God's saying to his people, there's going to be a temptation for you to try to be respectable, for you to try to look good to these other nations. And that can't be. It wasn't that, you know, oh, if I, if I use any tool to shape a, a rock or stone, that that's somehow inherently evil. That's not the issue. The issue isn't the inherent, it's, it's neutral. The issue is your intention behind it. I'm going to do it so that I can be respectable to those who don't respect my God. And in doing so, I'm going to be rebellious to what God has said. Verse 26 has this interesting, some might call it weird verse. He says, do not go up on my altars on steps or your private parts might be exposed. Okay, so we, uh, we live in modern times. They were not. They're wearing cloaks, cloaks or basically like moo-moos, right? Like they're, they've just got like a shiv, a shift. They've just got this piece of fabric that's been sewn and it's, it's kind of, you know, you've seen the Bible flanographs, right? It's, a, it's a, almost like a dress, a kilt. And so what he's saying is, is, hey, there should be some respectability, some decency in how things are worshipped. Now, I think there's a couple things going on here. One is just practical. You're establishing this form of worship for the people of Israel. And he's saying, hey, on a practical level, you need to keep your altars small. Again, trying to be respectable and acceptable to pagan, God-rejecting people. Keep your altars small. Oh, don't build the biggest altar so then you can be, look how great we are. And then a practical reality of building the biggest, tallest altar is that somebody's going to have to climb up it. And if you're wearing a kilt or a cloak, you know, uh, you got a danger of some, some embarrassing stuff being seen. 
but also idol or idolatrous worship among those cultures from, from earliest days into Jesus's time has almost always been sexualized. And that's why um, there, there's so much talk in the New Testament about temple prostitutes, because in Ephesus and in Corinth and in Philippi and in Colossae, if you went to worship at the local temple, there were these priestesses so-called, if you're on the audio version of this, I'm, I'm using air quotes here, but these priestesses were really temple prostitutes. You would go and then you would sleep with them as an act of worship. You might read as we continue studying through the, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, there, there's talk about the Asherah pole. That was the goddess of fertility, that there was a sexualized aspect to their worship. And so what God is doing, I think, is probably a couple things. There's probably a very practical thing. Hey, don't build the altar so high that this is what'll happen. And then there is probably a very spiritual thing happening. There will be the temptation to want to be like the world. There will be the temptation to put the false idols of the world in, and incorporate them into your worship. There will be the temptation to make yourself acceptable and respectable to shape your stones and to try to make ornate things so that you can show the world how great you are. And there's going to be the temptation to adopt the practices of worship of the world and sexualize it. And God's saying, I don't want any of that. I want you to worship me in humility and sincerity and in obedience. To obey is better than sacrifice, the Psalms say. I want you to be obedient. Verse 1, chapter 21, these are the laws you are to set before them. So he's established a form of worship, and now he is going to speak to the realities of a nation coming together. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. But if in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone. But if he has a wife when he comes, she is to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master and only the man shall go free. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and my children and I do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges and he shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. And an awl is just sort of a big spike kind of earring. Then he will be his servant for life. If a man sells his daughters as a servant, he, she is not to go free as male servants do. If she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. If he selects her for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her with any of these three things, she is to go free without any payment or money. I have been on record as saying that there is very few things that trouble me in the scripture as much as the issue of slavery. Now, I know that America has a terrible and tragic history with slavery, as does the rest of Western civilization. In fact, um, 
right now for school, I'm reading a history of the Western Church, and and it's dealing with the economic realities of why slavery happened. And I've actually been blessed and encouraged that even though there were very high official parts, so-called, of the church that gave a pass to slavery, I've been encouraged to read about many ground-level true believers in Jesus um, who did all they could to fight slavery. It wasn't just William Wilberforce, although I'm thankful for him and his example, but many Spaniards and, and others who um, opposed slavery in their day because of their Christian faith. Yet, we have this. And even more troubling is how women are treated versus how men are treated. And I don't know that there's an easy answer for it. In fact, one time I was uh, preaching at a church in California, and I was talking about the passage I was teaching had a reference to slaves, and I mentioned my discomfort with it. And somebody well-meaning, I think, afterwards came up to me and tried to give me the sort of easy answers that whoever, I don't mean to disrespect anybody by saying it, but it was obvious that they were just repeating whatever they had heard Josh McDowell or Ravi Zacharias or somebody like that saying. And I said, well, I, look, if that's good for you, I'm, I'm happy for you, but it doesn't answer my concerns. And sometimes there are those in the church who, who like the easy answers or just, or easy answers, that's even disrespectful. Like they, they have a, an answer to that question that's good for them. And they, yet they don't seem to have charity when it doesn't work for me or for you. What I've learned is this, God is good. And that when he was establishing these rules, that didn't change his goodness. Jesus talked about these laws, about divorce, and I think it's applicable to slavery as well. He said, out of the hardness of your hearts, Moses gave you these laws. What he's saying is God was establishing laws for a nation. And he knew that there would not, it would not be, a, this is what the people are going to do anyway. That's why they had the cities of refuge. The cities of refuge is this thing we'll get to in a little bit, where basically it was like, if you killed somebody by accident, you were not to be held responsible for that. But God knew that in that culture, you kill somebody by accident, there's a decent chance that that person's brother or sons or father or somebody is going to come after you. So God established these cities of refuge that you could run to as a protection from mob justice. God was not endorsing revenge killing. In fact, he forbade it. Vengeance is mine, thus says the Lord. God was not endorsing mob violence, but he was dealing with the realities of a sinful people and so he created a situation out of it. These laws here are God dealing with the hardness of the people's heart. I wish that it was better. And yet at the same time, the fact that we are so horrified by them, I believe, is, is a good sign that we have seen the work, the holiness of God working in the, our lives and in the lives of believers to recognize this is not right. And what Jesus said in Matthew 19, verse 8, is so true. It was out of the hardness of their heart. And Lord, whatever is hard in my heart that you are permitting out of 
a recognition of that, I pray that you would break and make me more like Jesus and bring your holiness, your truth, your righteousness in me. It's easy to look back on people in the past and judge them. But Lord, how will people in the future look back on me and judge me? Change my heart, O God. Search me and know me. Show me any unpure, incorrect way within me. And I'm so thankful that God is willing and able to do that work of holiness in our lives. Well, with 20 minutes up, we'll be done for this episode. I want to say thank you for joining us for another episode of the 20-Minute Bible Study Podcast. New episodes release every Thursday on Apple Music, Spotify, and video version on our Facebook page. My name's Adam. You can email me at adam at faithonhill.com. And we'll see you next week for another episode of the 20-Minute Bible Study.